I spent some time in the last probably week, because here I am talking about it, but in the last two weeks for sure, with three people that I, uh, one of them I know quite well, and the other two are fairly new friends and contemporaries of ours and how we met and the, uh, is not so relevant, is that the conversation was about we're all people, we're all more or less the same age, so uh, everybody's around 70 somehow. And we're talking about that. That's an awesome age, you know. People in the in the Bible, for instance, it, I guess the reference is to three score and ten, which you're supposed to get as a lifespan. I think whoever wrote that, you know, in biblical times, three score and ten was ancient. Now, if somebody dies at seventy, we say so young, you know. <laughs> that, you know, but uh, which you know, it's just on what end you are, you know. I even think that now when I was young, I thought it was... When I was young, I used to calculate that I would be 64 in the millennium year. And then the Beatles wrote, Will You Still Love Me When I'm 64? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's sort of a ridiculous and irrelevant question because 64 is so over the hill. You know that... Anyway, so your perspective <laughs> changes as you grow into it. But everyone was, every one of these four people were around 70 years old. And the question that came up, which I really am going to ask us all to think about in the back of your mind as we talk, is uh, we talk about, is it true that when you get older, you get wiser? And uh, it's one of those things that people say, well, you get older, you get wiser. And I think that's not always true, you know. I think some people don't get any wiser at all and that... They end up just exactly wherever they were. Or that even getting wiser isn't even a goal in some people's minds. Um, uh, that's even a concept, getting wiser. What do you mean getting wiser? We could think about that. Uh, but So he was an interesting conversation. The question is, uh, are you wiser? What do you absolutely know? And so the, the, what do you know for sure to be true? And then subsequent to that conversation, it's come up in a conversation with several other people, meditation students who are telling me about things that they're studying in the, in the dedicated practitioner programs and exercise that they're doing about what is your absolute truth, what do you know. And I was thinking about um, when I first learned uh, mindfulness meditation, uh, my teachers told me that there were three levels of uh, awareness or truth or levels of insight that I might experience in uh, meditation. And the truth is, uh, I, I don't know whether they meant them to be hierarchical, like this is the, you know, number one is the least and number two is more important, number three is really important. I think actually they did because you'll hear them right away and they'll probably sound like that. Subsequently, I decided, well, they're not hierarchical, um, or they shouldn't be, that any dimension in which there's suddenly light in which there wasn't light before, that anything that you see more clearly, that any insight that elucidates a part of your life that's been up to then in confusion, all the better. So why should we say, well, it's a half-baked one because it's not a real insight? But And that we have to say them hierarchically because you can't say three things at one time. You can only advance one idea at one time. So at least with that caveat, I'll tell you that the way they, pre they presented it was they said, this is what happens to most people as they um, practice mindfulness meditation, particularly not as a life practice, uh, mindfulness in life, but mindfulness really as a contemplative practice, sitting still or walking quietly, being in stillness, really uh, paying attention to the coming and going moment to moment of experience in body and mind. What do they experience? So the first level was uh, uh, insights about physical insights. People often report that when they go to yoga classes as well, they say, I have no idea I was so stiff. Or I had no idea that uh, I breathed in such a shallow way. Sometimes when people begin to do mindfulness practice, even though, uh, although we have yoga practices in our retreats, we mostly sit and walk and sit and walk, people will say things like, um, 
I, you know, I have no idea how much uh, pain there is in my body or how much tension I carry around with me or how when I think certain thoughts, my body becomes tense and then I have a headache about it and then I breathe faster and then I can't sleep. So that the first level were, were physical insights. Insights about one's own body, one's own mind-body uh, being and how it worked. If I think certain thoughts, these things happen in my body. If I think other thoughts, these ki- this kind of thought brings, this kind of memory brings, this kind of feeling, and then my body tightens up. So that people really inhabit their bodies a little bit more. That's a strange thing for a Buddhist to say. So I have to change it because I don't think there's anything that inhabits it. Uh, what develops is more awareness about the body. And may, and I actually think it's quite an important awareness because as I begin to appreciate that these kind of thoughts lead to these kind of feelings, lead to this kind of pain in the body, it begins to be an alarm bell in the mind. When we first started to sit this morning, I was uh, telling the group uh, that... Uh, I, I actually was reading yesterday's newspaper. Um, I stopped for breakfast in a cafe that I like. I was reading yesterday's newspaper, and it uh, begins with, uh, on the front page, the federal government is on the verge of one of the biggest giveaways of oil and gas in American history. An estimated $7 billion over five years, this is a new plan, that will let companies pump about $65 billion worth of oil and natural gas from federal territory without paying any royalties to the government. So I'm reading that over my scrambled eggs, and, uh, and I feel my mind go into high... I, did, I should, probably shouldn't have done it now, but I did it for the effect. <laughs> what ha- here, let me, not, let me not presume. What happened to you when you heard that? <laughs> 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 and the pursuing thoughts on top of subsequent thoughts. So, so, so that feeling... And the subsequent thought, just like always, da 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 da, it's never going to end. There's no point, da 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 da. And there's a way. Here I am sitting with this beautiful dish of scrambled eggs and a nice hot cup of coffee, which I'm about to, had been about to enjoy. And all of a sudden, I have elected to enter into a mythical internal dialogue to no avail because that dialogue. I mean, truly, I can go home as I often do and write a letter to the editor, which they often, as they often do, they won't publish. <laughs> but they might. And anyway, the, the copy editor that it comes across that person's desk will see it. I'll write it to somebody, and I will have the pleasure of writing it and saying what I think about that. But <coughs> watch the mind, unguarded, reach out and start to have a fight with mythical, hypothetical people that I don't know, and here's my eggs that I could have been <laughs> enjoying. And then you know, the rest of the story that I told actually as a meditation instruction is my son figuring out where I was dropped in to have breakfast with me as he lives here in this county. I look up, oh, there he is. And all of a sudden I'm quite happy to see him. And the mythical dialogue, or the, the actual dialogue that's in my mind, but not a dialogue I'm having to any avail with anybody, the only point of that dialogue, the only sequelae of that dialogue as I was fuming up my own mind and making my body tense and missing the eggs. Here he comes. I'm happy to see him. In that moment, the dialogue falls out of the mind. It's as if you can only do one thing at a time. And then there's happiness. And in that moment, I'm aware, ah, here is my ticket out of that unhappiness. Now, the reason I want to bring that up particularly and have you think about it is what if he hadn't come at that point? And what is the ticket out of the unhappiness when a person you love doesn't show up or the moon is not full or three days old, which are the two moons that I particularly like? What if in that moment there's nothing redemptive outside that lifts up the spirit naturally? What lifts it up? So here's a very important reading from the Buddha. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya, which Pasquale Marinello, my old, good old friend from long ago, pointed out to me this morning. He said, what do you think about this? So I think it's exactly what I meant to talk about. 
This is uh, Teachings of the Buddha. He says, Friends, I know of nothing which is as intractable as an untamed heart. The untamed heart is indeed intractable. Friends, I know of nothing which is as tractable as a tamed heart. The tamed heart is indeed tractable. Friends, I know of nothing which tends towards loss as does an untamed heart. Indeed, the untamed heart tends to loss. Friends, I know of nothing which tends towards growth as does a tamed heart. Indeed, the tamed heart tends towards growth. Friends, I know of nothing which brings suffering as does an untamed, uncontrolled, unattended, and unrestrained heart. Such a heart brings suffering. Friends, I know of nothing which brings joy, as does a tamed, controlled, attended, and restrained heart. Such a heart brings joy. This is enormously important. Thank you so much. Is exactly the point I hope to make, except it makes it more concisely. In that moment, the untamed heart be meeting a disagreeable, unpleasant um, event, which was reading this piece of news, untrained, untamed, unattended, leaps into a conversation of contention. It, there's another possibility. It could read it and it's, it could say, oh dear, look what's happening. This is really not good. I really hope this changes. I'll go home and write an email and here's Michael and now I'll eat the eggs. It could have done it that way but it didn't because it did the other thing instead. That's the untamed heart. There are three kinds of experiences that we meet that uh, uh, that are the flavors of experience. I'm going to come back to the three levels of insight but we're now talking about the three levels of experience the three flavors of experience. There are unpleasant experiences. It's unpleasant to have a piece of news delivered to you visually or orally or whatever. This is happening. Ah, okay, it's an unpleasant experience. Or it's a, um, it's an unpleasant experience. There are pleasant experiences. Um, oh, or there are experiences that arouse lust, which are pleasant experiences. I could turn on the radio and they could say, today we're having a 90% sale off everything in such and such a store. <laughs> Run over right now. <laughs> and I could think to myself, huh, I didn't actually think I needed that stuff, but 90% off, you know, should run over. Who knows what they have 90% off. So that's again, but you know, I didn't have time today, but on my way from here to there, I could just rush into that store and get something. <laughs> but you know, there would be something. I'm not, not seized by lust. I would probably do it for less than 90% off. <laughs> so the tamed heart would say, that's good. I don't need anything. Great. I could spare myself that crowd that's going to be there when I get there. Uh, I have a cartoon framed in my kitchen. Um, it's a, a Nicole Hollander cartoon. Do you know the Nicole Hollander Sylvia? Sylvia, Sylvia is yeah. typing uh, is typing a list on her typewriter. She often is in the cartoons of uh, responses you always wanted to make to questions. And uh, one of the first response is. Um, Yes, it is a little unusual to win the Nobel Prize and a gold medal in the Olympics in the same year. <laughs> uh, and would you bring me a pair of trousers in a, a leather pants in a size two? <laughs> and they got a few others. And then at the end, on the bottom of this list of responses you'd like to make is, uh, no thanks, I've got everything I need. That, that would be, an, and then around it, you hear a voice that's coming from another room that says, "Mom, going to the store. Do you want anything?" Mm -hmm. And on the bottom, you see a response. You say, "Yeah, get me two of everything." <laughs> yeah. So that you know, just you could have something. Oh yeah, I could have it. Whoa, two. 
or 90%, that the untamed heart is so open to lust, you know. And in all different ways, you know, we tend to think of, say, especially when it's translated as, I don't like it as greed, because greed always sounds like wanting someone else's stuff, but it's really just wanting for oneself, that uh, gnawing desire, I would be comfortable if I had a new wardrobe, if I had a new person, if I had a new relationship, a new car, a new rug, a new house, a new this, a new that. A kitten, that's what I need, is a kitten. You know, whatever. I'll, but there's something out there that will make me comfortable. The idea, when you see a picture of a kitten, I was in a pet store last night with my with my 14-year-old grandson. So he wanted to show me the pet store and the restaurant where we were going to have our Valentine dinner together. And I suddenly started to think, maybe I need this turtle. I have no <laughs> But it was really cute, you know, and no desire whatsoever before it. But the mind looks at something, and it's cute, and you think, oh, I need this. And mostly the mind is sane enough to know, no, I don't really need it, or it wouldn't be a good thing. But it's the way the mind, the untamed heart, looks at something good, and it thinks I could have it. And then the untamed heart, when it's not new and stimulating and interesting out there, it falls asleep. It doesn't pay attention. It's waiting for, for, for something with a big valence, like, oh, I don't like this, I can get rid of it, or oh, a turtle, one, never mind, a hamster or a mouse. Or, you know, <laughs> you know, I can have that. They're really cute, you know. That, never mind that I did that already, but, you know, it's... It, so, but the other thing is the mind gets bored and it goes to sleep. It has those three kinds of responses to what's going on. The tamed heart looks at what's going on, sees what's going on, and says, this is a really cute turtle. Remember the time years ago we had a turtle? So so much fun with it. Our life does not lend itself to turtles now, but turtles were great when they, you know, you know this, what I don't like in the paper, I'll go home and I'll write a letter. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work, but I will feel better. In the meantime, let me pay attention to this moment because, among other things, it, the paying of attention is the thing that makes me alive in this moment. It's really the paying attention. Otherwise, I think that falling asleep is, is a kind of a, is a sleepwalking through uh, life. I have a friend who's um, um, a spiritual teacher in another tradition but who is now old in his 80s, and he still likes to tell a story about one of his daughters who, uh, when she was three years old, this is, woman has children of her own now, when she was three years old would come in in the morning, came in the morning, one morning, and uh, asked him, she said, Daddy, when you get up in the morning, you know, you're asleep and then you wake up. She said, once you wake up, could you wake up again? Could you be more up than up? And in, I think that what, the, what we are called to in spiritual practice is the recognition that we could be more up than up, that we could actually see more than what we see. I am so aware that there are zillion things that happen all the time, going on all the time, and I tend not to see except the ones that I need to get from place A to place B. And I think we all do that. I don't think it's morally reprehensible. I think there's just way too much stimuli going on, and we pick out what's important, and then uh, and we make our reality out of it. And when the mind is balanced, it just gets a little bit more reality. It's that particular point is especially important when something has happened that's annoying, uh, and the mind closes down been thinking about the principal problem of the mind is that, remember when I said we're talking about mind-body, is that when something happens that startles the mind, the mind closes down just literally as if it gets tunnel vision onto the one annoying thing, and uh, the body gets tense around it, and the whole world disappears around that one annoying thing. I think about it, it well, here's one of the most benign, but maybe actually one of the more important examples of that. If I'm in a uh, very uh, tremendous traffic, I, I live up in northern Sonoma most of the time, and sometimes I come down, and 
all of a sudden it's Highway 12 or something, and the traffic gets all, doesn't move. And I start to look about, I'm going to be late for class, I'm going to be late for something. And anybody has this ever, where you start to, it starts to be so tremendously important what you're going to be late for. It's not that tremendously important, but the mind suddenly thinks that everything depends on getting there on time. It closes down, the mind starts to think bad thoughts about all these people around here are driving one person in a car, clogging up the highway. Then I realize that I am one person in a car. <laughs> but you, know, the, you look at the other people. And that the, 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 the move at that point, if I could make my mind into really seeing what's really there, not what's important to me, is that uh, my car is jammed up and I won't get to my place on time. The bigger view would be all of these people are going someplace. I wonder where they're going. I wonder if they're going to a friend in need. I wonder whether they're going to their 90-year-old grandmother's birthday party. I wonder whether they're going to support their 90-year-old grandmother at the draft board. I wonder what's going on. I wonder why the traffic is also closed. Maybe someone's had an accident. I wonder if they're hurt. May they be peaceful. Maybe they'll not be hurt. Maybe their family be not upset. There's a much wider view of the world other than how is it serving me and my needs at this point. But mostly I think I go around thinking how is the world meeting up with me and my needs at this point. And from this point of view, instead of getting upset with it and pushing it away, I meet the world with an, all right, I'm not mad at it. This is a tamed heart. This is the untamed. This is a tamed heart that looks and says, "This is a, look at all these people. I have no idea where they're going. May they be peaceful. May they be happy. May, be, may they get there okay. If there's an accident, may those people be all right. I actually may, I'm telling you this whole story with this example because I want to make very clear that there's a difference between a tamed heart and an inert heart. It isn't that you have a tamed heart and it's, it's all the same to it, you know, just whatever. It's indifference. I'm stuck, I'm stuck. But I think that that's not true. I think that the tamed heart, the untamed heart, is after its own needs and it's selfish. And that the tamed heart is really tamed from responding to, to self-serving egocentric needs. And then it's available to make itself present for whatever the need is out there. If there's anybody out there in trouble, may they be peaceful. May they be happy. You don't, have, you don't have to think, oh, what should I do with my time now? I'll do metta. It just happens. I think that the responsive heart is right there beyond, as, as innate to human beings and beyond that uh, veil of confusion that the untamed heart creates. I think that's probably the most important line I said so far. That's true. I believe that. Okay, so I want to finish those three levels of insight because um, then I'm going to ask you to talk to somebody about what do you know to be true from your experience. First level is you see how your mind and body react to what's going on and respond to it and um, know it better. So that if I, if I had been in a more relaxed way this morning and more wise, I would not have needed Michael to arrive in the cafe. I would have watched myself read that newspaper, watched the storm start, and I would have said to myself, don't do it. Just don't do it. Here come the eggs. Eat the eggs. <laughs> Think about the people you're going to see this morning at 9 o'clock. Plan to write an email to the New York Times later. And just eat the eggs, have the coffee, sit here. I could have seen that and not indulged in the... I didn't. Next level. First level is uh, attention to the mind-body continuum and how it works. Second one is attention to insight into the way one's own particular psyche responds. I'm really convinced that we either come into this body with genes that are prepared to read the environment in a certain way. I think we are, actually. More and more that I read, it's, uh, it's coming out to be that uh, our genes are reading the environment um, much more than we think. I, I, uh, I won't read this all to you, but I took this out of Monday's newspaper. Uh, 
the the uh, um, headline is is the right chemistry a click nearer, and it has a picture of the woman who is now an anthropologist working on a dating website um, because uh, and and talking about the fact that uh, there is a, a really a science that. Uh, uh, people could understand about why we fall in love with certain people and not other people and that it actually turns out not to be because they read Proust in the middle of the night or whatever else that we think it is that appeals to us that actually something actually much more fundamental is happening on the level of genes that read each other and uh, are attracted to particular kind of people when you think about it we meet zillions of people in our lives, many of them extremely compatible people, nice, lovely. And the people who do dating services will tell you, I met, you know, 45 people, and they all met all the criteria that I wrote as what I wanted. And the 46th person, we had chemistry, but the first 45 all had the criteria without the chemistry. It's very interesting to think, because you know, we, we like to... <coughs> At least I think I think it's been my case that we like I like to romanticize it's because of this it's because of that not because my genes are propelling me in one direction or another but I think it could be the genes because I know that people have and they're now mapping out worry genes that that uh, some people are intrepid I've been watching the downhill ski racers and I am sure that they have different genetic structures than I do. <laughs> And I was, when I was younger, quite a proficient skier. I was a really, I was a proficient skier. I could ski down. All the slopes, you know, short of double diamonds, I could ski them. But I didn't ski them like these people ski them. And I have different genes. I could have always stopped. And they are skiing full out. They have different genes. They don't scare like I do. So it's just, and they, they come down and some of my children this way, some of them that way. On top of that, we have different families, and we learn different messages from our families about what's, what's good to talk about, what's not good to talk about, what we can say, what we cannot say, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And that one of the things that happens from paying attention to one's experience is you begin to see what are the filters through which my experience are coming, is coming. What are the stories that I have about this or that or the other? I, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a person uh, open-minded, without, uh, I don't have uh, stereotypical biases about this or that, I think. But actually, if I pay attention, I have, I have a filter that things come through. And the filters are there for some reason. Probably genetic, because I startle easily. And probably things that I got taught by my parents or my culture. I think about that a lot because uh, I have the image that when probably since I startle easily, you know what, that, that they have a newborn baby and they do something like this. So they clap either side of the table, they put the baby down, they clap here, baby goes, because he's supposed to do that. When, some don't, and some don't. But, and I think probably some of them do a lot. Yeah. You know, I, Those are the people that startle, and I, don't, I think it's just you're born with it. You're born with it. And some people, and, and here is what's true. When, I, when I am on retreat, when everyone is on retreat, by the time a week has gone by or several days have gone by, they startle less. Mm-hmm. I startle less. Whatever is your baseline, more tranquility is built in. So it's not that everybody starts from the same place, but everybody moves in the same direction. What that means, and I remember when Deepa Ma came to this country and I met her, uh, her most obvious, incredible trait was tranquility. She had such, it was just wonderful to be around her. She was so tranquil. She radiated tranquility. And I had a mixed feeling about it. First of all, I loved being around her. It was so pleasant. And the other thing is it worried me a little bit because, you know, I aspired to making progress as a, you know, as a spiritual student. I want a meditation student. 
And I didn't think that I was going to come out that way, no matter how much. I'm actually quite a passionate person. Tranquility is not my native long suit. <laughs> and I, I, and yeah, this could be sour grapes, but actually, I, I actually, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think I'm telling the truth, and I say everybody comes with different equipment. I am by nature startleable and passionate. And I feel a lot about when things happen to me. Good news cheers me and bad news uncheers me. I'm actually not upset about that. First of all, it's just the way the machine came. Uh, I don't know that I'd want that other because I feel quite alive about that. What I want is not to be held hostage by the bad news like that. Uh, in the newspaper, or the or carried away by the, or needing the good news, or getting confused by the good news. I want to be able to see that all and respond to it with a whole heart, passionately, not and and not in a way that uh, creates confusion in my mind. I wouldn't want it otherwise. But anyway, in order to be sure, that I tell you the three. The second layer of seeing is what are the what's the machinery in my mind like the the what are the programs that are already installed in my mind around through which information has to navigate in order for me to see it clearly um, one of my favorite uh, uh, pieces of literature is an essay called the power of mindfulness by uh, Nyana Panaka uh, in a book called the vision of Dhamma by Nyana Panaka and uh, he talks about mindfulness as having the function of tidying the mind. I love that. It's such a you know, such an old-fashioned word. Nobody says I'm going to tidy my house. You know, I'm going to clean, but it's really an old word. I'm going to tidy. Um, and he goes on to describe in that essay. He said, if you had an untidy living room, you wouldn't want to go in there and sit down, and you couldn't find anything in it. It would be untidy, and it wouldn't feel comfortable for you. Said the mind is full of stuff lying around in there. Said he, it's a very too bad I don't have it. Last week I brought it. Anyway, there's a, just one paragraph where he says, just a few moments of looking into your own mind and see what a mess it is. It's, it's very untidy. All this uh, bits and pieces of this and that. And he talks about mindfulness having the uh, potential of tidying the mind, not getting rid of things and not necessarily, just tidying it so that you see what's there and you can move around in it. If I know what the, 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 what programs are installed in my mind to keep this out or that out or make this view or that view, at least I can know that they're there and figure in them out. I know that, for instance, one of the pieces of equipment that's installed in my mind, like a computer program, is a uh, catastrophizing machine. It takes simple things and elevates them to the possible catastrophic limit. And if, so that I know that if something comes in and registers as uh, imminent catastrophe, it might be wrong. It might be something that I should pay attention to, but it might be something that has come through my filter and therefore I have to think about that. So it doesn't mean, it just means I have to know that it's a filter in there. Level of personal physiology and psychology. And the third level of insight, which again makes it sound like the most important, maybe it is, is really uh, the spiritual insights that we all, ha- that we all are, um, have the potential of discovering as part of mindfulness practice, principally what the causes and the end of suffering that cling, every time clinging arises in the mind, which means every time the sense in the mind arises that things need to be any different from the way they are, that suffering has begun. Mm-hmm. That any time there's contention in the mind, suffering has begun. It, it really even includes reading the newspaper, seeing that that's happening, knowing that that's unacceptable, and still having presumably the possibility of saying, this is really unacceptable. What should I do now without contention? That that's a possibility. Not suggesting I do it. Uh, 
anywhere near as much as I'd like to. It sounds it has the possibility of sounding um, indifferent, but the ne- because the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. But it's a really important difference. Indifference has a uh, has um, a quality of aversion in it, like you know, I'm not going to do this. I, and you hear it sometimes. You hear it from people saying, "I'm not going to read the paper. I'm not going to listen to the news. It's too horrible. What do I have to know?" There is a quality of indifference about that. So the, the in, equanimity says, "I'll you know, I'll watch enough to know what's happening, or I'll read enough to know what's happening," and Thinking about what's happening and out of compassion for all beings, all of them wanting to be happy and everyone suffering, I'll do what I can. That really, that level of insight, uh, that spiritual insight, is that that move between uh, the first and the second and the third noble truth and the fourth, that life is inherently suffering. Everybody is trying hard to be comfortable, not just the people that we mention in our prayers that are in some precarious position, but really everybody. That we, even when things are going well, when things are well, because of the nature, because of temporality, because things come and go, they won't stay. You know, It's hard to hold on to happiness. How many people have seen Brokeback Mountain? It's an amazing film. I have a friend who's seen it three times. I need to go see it again because there are pieces that I need to go back. It's very complex. It's very complex. One of the things that I come away thinking is that apart from the the particular story, I left there feeling so much that it represented everybody's suffering. Everybody is suffering. Everybody's trying so hard to make a life out of this one short life. Everybody's trying so hard to be happy, to find what will make them happy and to be able to have it. And it's so hard. Not only... Not only because not because of one or another dimension, not only because it's why Wyoming in nineteen sixty three just everybody wants so much for their chance of happiness for the mind to not for the mind to be content, how will make the mind content, and the nature of our lives is it's so hard for the mind to be content it's very hard, it's a very complicated movie. I think very good. The first noble truth is it's very hard. Sometimes when we think about the suffering in the world, we tend to think, uh, even I think about the wars, the the iniquities, the famines, the terrible things that are happening in in uh, on a global nature to the to the planet. But I think about the suffering in everybody's mind that. Uh, it's so hard for the mind to say, okay, uh, in this moment, this is how things are. What can I do now? You know, that place of mind resting and out of compassion for the world, thinking, what can I do now? How can I make this better? It's so, uh, one of the things that I brought to show you, because, um, now let's finish the Four Noble Truths and then I'll show you this book. First noble truth is that there's so much suffering. It is there is suffering. Uh, sometimes when people translate that, they say there is suffering. Or sometimes there's suffering. The way it's r- written in Pali is uh, there is suffering. It is suffering. Um, everything is suffering. The second noble truth is that suffering is uh, uh, tanha. It's craving. It's the need to have anything different from how it is. Which, as human beings, we always want things to be different from how it is. So the taming of the mind is the place between wanting. Who doesn't want, you know? You know, I, we want everything to be... When you go in a restaurant, they give you a menu because you want certain things. And I mean, 
we're always making choices based on I want this, or I want that, or I want this, I want that. And a lot of times it's easy not to have what we want, and sometimes it's profoundly painful not to have what you want. The movie is a heightened story of everybody not having what they want. The second, noble, the second noble truth is the tension itself, sometimes it's translated as the cause of suffering, is craving. Craving is suffering. The third noble truth is the end of suffering is a possibility. Peace is possible. Craving is suffering, non-clinging, non-craving, non-needing. But you think, non-needing? I wouldn't be alive if I didn't need. Who doesn't have... Who doesn't have desires? The great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. Who isn't not attached to preferences is the word. Who doesn't have preferences? When neither love nor hate arises, all is clear and undisguised. Separated by the smallest amount, however, and you are as far from it as heaven is from earth. If you wish to know the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. I, by the way, I have had this in my purse since somewhere in the 1970s, and I carry it around with me like my driver's license and my social security card. If I change purses, I put it in the other purse. You never know when you're going to need to know the faith, the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch, which is what that is. You can also download it off the internet if you want. They are the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch. The fourth noble truth. The third noble truth is that peace is possible, that the mind can not cling. It can relax in this moment. I don't know for sure that continuing, ongoing, unbroken, undisturbed peace is possible. That's what it says, but it's not my experience yet. I don't have that experience. I have the experience of alternatively being not in contention and being in contention. That's another way of thinking about it. Without being asleep. So, so, well, you know, if you're maybe sitting on a desert island or you're... No, no, but sometimes in the middle of the world, my mind is all right. Sometimes my mind is able to say, well, this is happening what should I do now? And sometimes it says, you know, and I think it's the difference between the tamed and the untamed mind. The fourth noble truth is the path to taming the mind through uh, right understanding, right aspiration, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And most recently, I've been thinking that right effort is maybe the most important of them all. It's like people, it's like the unsung hero of the path. We talk more about mindfulness and concentration. You go on retreat, you hear about mindfulness and concentration. I actually think of right effort being very close to right intention, close to right aspiration. It's that moment in the mind when you say, wait a minute, I'm about to do that. I'm not going there. Let me not go down this path. I thought once it would be a great song to write, a song that said something like, the road to indignation leads no place good. But anyway, the, the mind that that's, starts to read the paper and reads the headlines and say, oh no, this is going to be terrible. I wonder what these people have done next. is already revving itself up before it reads. Is the, road, is the mind that's just lost itself and fallen into that, let's get mad now, is an opportunity. And that what it requires is really renunciation. And I was thinking about it this morning as I was coming here, and I thought, well, I'm surprised. I didn't think I was going to talk about renunciation. Renunciation is one of the ten paramis. And I think renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion, can't say, ready, set, go, I'm renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion, it's never going to happen again. But it's not, it, not that it won't happen again, 
but you can say, I am renouncing to whatever degree I can manage. I vow to renounce responding to that impulse to go forward with greed, hatred, and delusion if I can possibly manage it. It's like that little place in the chain of continuing karma where I look at the paper and I could think to myself, ah, this is going to be a hard um, article to read. I see by the headline it's going to be something that's likely to arouse my disapproval. Let me see if I can read this in the spirit of how will I write my op-ed piece later. Or maybe not read it until I finish my scrambled eggs. Let's make a plan now of how not to use this as a moment to whiz yourself up. And I think it's really renouncing. There's a certain there's a certain pleasure in let's get upset, let's do and the mind just runs for it. It it enjoys a little scramble. Or thinks it will, but it doesn't end up enjoying it. And I think it's really a, a question of more and more a dedication to cultivation of peace. So you can think of it as renunciation. Of the other. You have three minutes. Uh, we didn't get to talk about what you absolutely know that's true. We'll do that next week because of all those things. I want to show you this book, though. This is a book about, it's a wonderful book. I, uh, uh, it's written by a friend of mine and her partner. Uh, Malka is a, um, Malka Drucker is a rabbi, Gabriel is our partner, who is a wonderful photographer. And these are a book of photographs of, 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 and interviews of uh, people in Germany and in Holland and uh, who uh, took in Jews during the period of 1940 to 45, hid them in their homes at peril to their own lives. And uh, I, I, I read it five years ago, and I just read it again. Uh, most of it, you can read one or another of them. It's a marvelous book. And uh, when I said before, what lifts up your heart if the moon isn't in the right phase or your relative doesn't show up? Reading about heroism, reading about people who, in answer to the question, why did you let people into your house when you knew you were taking such a big chance, responded, I couldn't not do it, really inspires my faith that human beings really have that potential. It's Malka Drucker, D-R-U-C-K-E-R, wrote it. Her friend Gay Block, her partner Gay Block, B-L-O-C-K, is the... um, photographer. They're wonderful photographs. And the book is called Rescuers. Um, and it really, it's a, it lifts up your heart. <coughs> what, the place that we'll start next week is um, I really am giving a lot of thought to one of the questions that came up in this discussion of these four friends together about what do you know. Um, I like to to think that I trust that human beings fundamentally have the capacity for enormous heroism. uh, And they have the capacity... Maybe if I want to say it as a Buddhist, I think we really have that capacity for that peace of heart that allows us to respond without uh, even thinking, what should I do now, in a way that comes from a responsive heart, not an impulsive heart or an untamed heart. Maybe that's enough. Maybe we don't have to do that. Maybe I'll do something else next week. Because I think that's actually what I think in... in um, that's what this book inspires in me. All of these people did not make a plan in advance to do it. Uh, nobody, most of them, many of them didn't have tremendous philosophical reasons for doing it. They said, when that person came to my door and said, could I come in? They said, I couldn't say no. I think what happened is in that moment, they somehow managed to keep their 
a startle response out of the picture and their heart response presented itself. That's how I'd like to read it. That the heart response, when we're not confused, is one of um, compassion and sympathy. So, take a breath. May we be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering and continue to remind each other that that's a possibility because that recollection is probably the most exciting and the most mind-balancing of all. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 15, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.